Hi folks, Andy the Taxman here. Before we get into today's program, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Grappling with Canada on any podcasting platform of your choice. I'm your host, Andy the Taxman. This is Grappling with Canada. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Grappling with Canada. Today is going to be an interesting episode. Normally, as you know, these episodes are massive deep dives into the life, career, and trajectory of certain individuals from Canadian professional wrestling history. In the back catalog, you would naturally see such characters as Rowdy Roddy Piper, George Gordianko, uh, Billy Two Rivers, Stu Hart, Rhonda Singh, among many, many others who we have profiled in excess on the program Grappling with Canada. Today is a little bit different because this episode, quite honestly, is almost a lead-in into our July episode, which is why in your podcast feed, you will see that this episode has not come out on June 1st. It comes out on June 30th. There will be an episode on July 1st. Both of these episodes are intertwined with each other. I think you'll understand why as we progress in today's episode. Now, as I said, normally these episodes are a deep dive look. We go, you know, well into the career of the individual. We look at match histories, match statistics. We look at where they came from, what they did, who they were. All of that we will get into in some form or fashion in today's episode, but it's going to be much more free-flowing than most of the episodes that I've done on Grappling with Canada. Also... We will only have one guest on today's episode, and that is a big fan, first off, but more than that, a curator of history of our subject matter today, Dave McKigney. Now, later on in the episode, you're going to hear a lot from good friend of the show, Wes Maymond, who runs a tremendous amount of Facebook groups dedicated to the preservation of professional wrestling history, but specifically, and the one that we're going to be more focused on today, the history of the bear man, Dave McKigney. You're going to hear from Wes later on in the episode about all things Dave McKigney from not just the fan perspective, but also somebody who has spent a good majority of his adult life looking into, researching, cataloging, 
and saving, most importantly, the history of the promoter, of the wrestler, of the man, Dave McKigney. And I'm really looking forward to presenting that interview, that conversation to everybody, because Dave McKinney is one of these polarizing individuals in Canadian professional wrestling history. A couple of reasons for this exist. One is, and this is my personal opinion on it, there's a lot of information out there that paints Dave McKinney as, you know, just a quote-unquote outlaw promoter. That would be somebody who's not affiliated with any of the major promotions. That would be back in the day uh, promotions such as uh, the WWF, the AWA, the NWA, uh, even, you know, you go into Mid-South, you can go to Portland. He was not affiliated with any of these. He ran his own promotion. So we automatically get a strike against him from wrestling individuals who cover the sport, but really only cover what happened with the big ones, the NWA, the AWA, the WWF. So he doesn't get his due there. What happens then, obviously, as we all know in professional wrestling, things are misconstrued. And then they are retroactively reported on after the after being misconstrued, if you will. And it furthers the misconception of just how important an individual was. We've seen this in countless times and many times on this program. Uh, you will look at Rhonda Singh, for example, as a prime example of this. Many people will look at her WWF run, which was abhorrent. Let's be honest about it. But maybe many people have not come back to discover her uh, WWA run, her run in uh, AJW, for example, and just what an impact she had on the sport in itself and what her presentation meant for many people coming up, many women coming up in the professional wrestling world at that time. Like I said, today is going to be a much more free-flowing episode. Footloose and fancy free, if you will, because the July episode is going to be very, very heavy subject matter, but it also ties into directly the individual that we're talking about today, Dave McKigney. So, like I said, Wes Maymend is going to be joining me on the program. You can look in the show notes of today's episode. You will see listed the Facebook groups that Wes runs. You will also see a link to his podcast, the NWCA podcast with his co-host, Jesse, who was also a uh, previous guest on Grappling with Canada. That would have been the Whipper Billy Watson episode in season two, which you can find in your uh, back catalog of Grappling with Canada on whatever podcasting platform that you are currently listening to this show on. Now, who was Dave McKigney? This is an interesting question, so perhaps we should start there, and then we're going to jump right into a fun conversation. So, for those who are unaware, Dave McKigney was born June 9th, 1932 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. His start in professional wrestling is interesting. In around 1949, the future wild man, Dave McKigney, was a 17-year-old and was competing in amateur wrestling in the Toronto area. 
he was really a rough-and-tumble character in real life and in the ring when he ended up meeting up with Tom Rusk, who wrestled as Red Hawk in the territory. Uh, Red Hawk would go on to train McKigney a little bit, but more importantly allowed McKigney to be in the safe comfort of a wrestling ring. And I legitimately mean that. Uh, McKigney actually slept in the middle of the ring when he was training uh, with just a pillow and a cover. Uh, wrestlers would come and bring him uh, food and they would train him and this would go on for weeks and weeks. Now, through Rusk, McKigney would meet other wrestlers, including Red Garner, who you're going to hear about later on in the episode and specifically with my discussion with uh, Wes Maymint. He would also start appearing around shows in Toronto, billed as the Flying Frenchman Jacques Dubois, or sometimes Frenchy Dubois. Now, these names might get confusing, but a lot of this will be a lot more clear in my conversation with Wes Maymint. McKigney would also go on to appear in both Eastern and Western Canada, using different names such as Jean Dubois, uh, he would also be billed as Pierre Dubois, Dave Dubois, or Mike Dubois. Again, these are aspects that will be covered in my conversation upcoming with Wes Maybent. So that kind of sets the stage for the early life of the Bear Man. From there, you're going to hear my conversation with Wes Maybent. But before that, I want to play some classic audio. Now, unfortunately, there is not a lot of video evidence of the bear man or of you know his matches his presentation his promotional skills promos much of that is lost to time but there is a couple of important things that he brought to the table one of which is the wrestling bear so what i'm going to play for you is actually a conversation between wrestling historians jim Cornette and Dave Meltzer. Now, this is from roughly 10 years ago. They were actually watching and critiquing a match between Dave McKigney, the wild man, and Terrible Ted, the wrestling bear, which you're going to hear a lot more about in my discussion with Wes Maidment. So in this discussion, not only are you going to hear their interpretation of the match that they're watching at the time, but you're also going to get a brief history of the wrestling bear aspect in professional wrestling because that's going to come up in my conversation with Wes Maidment. And you're also going to hear a little bit more nuance about Dave McKigney. So I'm going to play some classic audio. This is about a seven minute clip. And then on the other side, we're going to get right down to business. My tremendous conversation with Wes Maidment. Please enjoy. This is an attraction that uh, hasn't been around for probably a good 25 years. This is the wrestling bear, Terrible Ted, and this looks like it's uh, Buffalo, New York. That's his trainer, Gene Dubois. He's actually going to wrestle his trainer. Wrestling bears were, uh, they were a real big attraction, I guess, in the 60s and, and probably the early 70s. And then um, late 70s, as a matter of fact, as late as the late 70s, early 80s in Tennessee, Nick Goulas uh, in Tennessee used to love to use wrestling bears. But in this case, 
Uh, Gene Dubois, the Bears trainer, is going to wrestle the Bear, whereas in a lot of uh, the southern circuits, the Bear was always used to wrestle the either maybe the uh, the most hated wrestling manager or one of the, uh, one of the, the top manager, heels. Right, right. Yeah. a lot of times the manager. There's a problem, of course, with wrestling the bear. If you think about, you know, sports entertainment and what wrestling is, and it's really hard to teach a bear to, like, you know, do a spectacular ring entrance, do good high spots. And, I mean, so, uh, you know, this is a different form of a match than you're normally used to. Well, you'll notice also the bear has a muzzle. There's obviously a really good reason for that because... Oh, guys are scared to wrestle bears for, you know... Oh, well, even if you train a bear and even if you uh, if you teach a bear to wrestle and even if a bear is tamed and domesticated, it still has, has its cranky points, especially if it's a female bear during certain times of the month or uh, if it's uh, supposed to be hibernating during certain times of the year. But these bears are so strong... If he wanted to, he could take that muzzle and hit you one time in the in the stomach or in the chest with that uh, with that big nose and break every rib in your body. So these bears are dangerous. They're, they're very dangerous, and one of the reasons why they don't have it is because um, uh, many of the bear trainers, um, the bears have hurt people. Uh, uh, yeah, and, um, I mean David McKigney's wife was was killed. Yeah, the the Canadian wildman yeah. uh, who who trained bears who for trained a long time bears, in, yeah. in Canada. Uh, his wife was was killed by the bear, and, and as well, there's been instances where uh, the bears would would get aggravated by flashes of, of uh, cameras or something that would happen. It would come over the top rope and go out into the crowd, which generally caused the consternation you would imagine when a six or eight hundred pound bear uh, goes flying through ringside wrestling seats. Uh, people generally scurry. Luckily, this bear was trained in amateur wrestling and not professional wrestling, so he's you know knowing not to break too many rules or get too vicious. You know, he knows. He knows his limitations, but some of those bears, when they're, you know, if, if you by accident got them riled up, um, you know, I mean, it's, it could be, it could be a really scary situation. I once saw a match in, uh, it wasn't, this was not a match, what am I saying? This was an incident in, uh, in Canada where they brought Yoshiaki Fujiwara, you know, from Japan since he was yes. like this great shooter. And they had a real wild bear. They had a bear that was not trained to wrestle and he jumped in this pen that this very nasty bear was in. And I mean, the bear would just growl at him and things like that. It was like, you know, I, 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 I mean, he is the bravest man that I've ever seen just to go in the pen. And then the bear would look at him and just see him as like this competing animal and just charge at him. And oh. I mean, knocked him silly. Oh my God, he was, the bear didn't realize that his opponent, uh, the referee was not his opponent. I think. Well, then you've also got to realize, like, you know, the bear has no shoulders. So how are you going to pin the bear? That's another problem. Bobby Eaton wrestled a bear one time in his life. Bobby Eaton is scared to death of big dogs, but he had to wrestle a bear, and the bear was being really stiff. Oh with no, him. no, check. He's trying to he's trying to get the referee to wrestle a bear, which is probably pretty smart. <laughs> and uh, and the referee's smart enough not to. And you know how big Bobby Eaton's fists are. He drew back and just drilled the bear in the right oh. in between the eyes with with a right hand as hard as he could. Oh, I think that would be a dumb idea. The bear lightened up. <laughs> the bear lightened up after that. He started working with him. <laughs> But uh, that's a that's a that's a true story. And Jerry Lawler wrestled a bear one time, and it was the only time that oh, I can remember. He's, he's, he's going to try to pin him, but wait a minute. Oh, the only time I can trip. remember the bear won a match by disqualification. Lawler pulled out a chain and hit the bear with a chain and oh. was disqualified. Oh my God. Well, I, I have seen matches where the bear is won by countout when the guy just goes, okay, you're just not paying me enough, and I'm going, I'm leaving. In fact, I saw a superstar Billy Graham did that once. <laughs> uh, in, I think it was in one of the cities in the Bay Area. I, I don't think it was San Francisco. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was just, an, an, he was attempting to have a match with a bear, and it was just sort of like, I think the bear's muzzle actually got off. And it was like, okay, I'm losing this match by countout. <laughs> uh, the... Uh... The referee was was out of the ring there, which I think is the best place for the referee to be in a match like this. I remember uh, 
uh, Nick Adams, who used to train uh, bear named Gentleman Ben. And also Terrible Ted. And also uh, Terrible Ted would uh, oh. would often um, give the, the bear a Coke that he would sit up and he would drink uh, right, out right. of a I bottle saw, after the match. That's, that's right. I remember that I remember that, that thing with the, with the bear sitting there in the ring. And, it was, I, I and mean, one, one time he wouldn't leave the ring because he wanted more Cokes. They didn't have any more Cokes in bottles. He didn't know how to drink out of a cup. And they, <laughs> it was a slightly nasty scene because the bear wouldn't leave and they couldn't make him. Oh. Probably held up the show. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. I think that's... He's <laughs> been the referee. That would appear to be the end of the match. Because bears don't know the rules very well. But unfortunately... This one did, this one did though. This, this one was was a good flying mare. A bear, I mean mayor, A good flying mayor artist. Yeah. Uh, but whether you beat the, the opponent or you beat the referee, the point is... It was a great attraction in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s well, to see wrestling. the... Uh, still wrestling Gene Dubois. <laughs> to see the wrestling bear. It was a good attraction, though. I remember, you know, the, the crowds were up when the bear would come. We, Roy Shires used to bring the bear into San Francisco, and uh, hey, that bear knows to lay down a little bit. Now, with Fujiwara, of course, he was a master of submissions, and somehow or other, the bear was very good at defending submissions, so Fujiwara did not get a chance to uh, utilize any of those holds he knows. How would the bear tap, I wonder? Uh, I think he would just... With his forelegs or his back legs? I think, that if, I think that if you got a submission on him, I think he would, like, bite your arm off, so... Uh, Maybe he wouldn't tap. And then there, there's a problem also there's with... A single, uh, there's a single leg. That poor referee doesn't know what's going on. The, there was a female wrestling bear that used to compete, and I'm trying to remember, even though it was given a male name, it was a female bear. And uh, the female bear would sometimes take a uh, an amorous liking to some of its opponents and roll its opponents up underneath it and begin oh boy. Uh, frantic motions, which the opponents would not uh, appreciate very much. Yeah. Now, see, that bear did a pretty good spot. That, that's actually a better wrestler than Hulk Hogan, though. Well, the, the bear is, has exhibited more moves in this match so far than Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash put together. <laughs> and actually, the bear... Not, has, only that, and not only that, the bear sells better. Yes, and <laughs> is, is, is willing to go down, and the bear has more hair than Hogan, <laughs> and, and it's, is not as gray as Nash. <laughs> Uh-oh, I think he's got him pinned now, though. The referee just doesn't want to count. Now, count. Uh, the referee's got the chain. I, the referee's going to pull the bear off. Now that, wait a minute. I don't know about that one. I don't know if I would do... Oh! Bear took down the referee again. The uh, the bear seems to be an unstoppable force. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm surprised that... Uh, you know, if Jim Hurd had been around in the uh, 50s, he would have thought of this instead of the hunchbacks and the ding-dongs. Well, actually, he did. But he, he, he used them in ring entrances. He just didn't have them wrestle with Matt Bourne. Remember when Matt Bourne, it was um, Big Josh? That's and true. And came out with the two dancing bears, which, was, by the way, was the same night that Kevin Nash debuted as Oz. So they could have saved some money. They could have had Kevin Nash impersonate one of the bears. But he can't dance as well as wrestle. <laughs> but he, I'm sure he can drink Coke, though. I'm, I'm sure he can do a lot of things with Coke. <laughs> You could drink it. You could pour it over your head. You could do all sorts of things. I had friends uh, that I've met that traveled on his shows, and they got to know him. They got to meet him. They got to know the wrestlers. They got to they got let in, so to speak. And they say nothing except what a great guy he was. He always paid what he promised. He would lose out and his out of his own pocket to pay his 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 guys, and and that stands a lot to testament. Considering, yes, yeah, some towns you're going to only draw 200 because the weather's too nice or it's too cold or it's too wet or whatever. Um, the the aspect of him being an Ontario or Canadian wrestling icon is completely overlooked. And I, I think that more people should 
take the consideration of thinking about how it worked back in the 70s. This is not the 90s. This is not the 2000s. This is the late 60s and the 70s. And and yeah, the guys drove a billion miles in Ontario. Hi, I'm Wes Maidmit, and I'm here with Andy tonight talking about one of my favorite things, uh, Dave McKegney. You can find us on the Facebook with our five Facebook wrestling history pages, the Ontario Wrestling Clippings of the Past, the Wildman page, the BC Tribute page, the Ric Flair Tribute page, and the National Wrestling Clippings Alliance main page. Also, we have the NWCA podcast on our YouTube channel. You can check that out at NWCA podcast on YouTube. Do you know what year specifically he started training? Uh, it's not specific. I don't have an exact date, but I do know he debuted, I'm pretty sure, in 1953. Yes, because he was training with the Red Gardner, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So maybe we'll start with that. So he starts training in early 50s. He He's training with Red Gardner. Maybe give a little bit of background on Red Gardner, whatever you have from your from your internal data banks if you will sure okay um yeah so uh dave mckegney started out as a really skinny small kid uh starting out rest uh, training with red garner red garner had a small promotion north of toronto called the ccwa central canadian wrestling association featured mostly lightweight guys light heavyweight guys but um the main thing that came from red garner obviously was Dave McKegney, the wild man, who, you know, was an icon in Ontario for decades. But we also uh, had Bull Johnson, who helped train out of there, also out of Hamilton. And, of course, uh, Waldo Von Erich and Baron Sakluna and Gito Mongol all spent some time with Red Garner uh, learning the trade and implying uh, in small little, <laughs> really small halls around Ontario and around the Toronto uh they never ventured that much into Toronto because obviously Frank Tunney owned and ruled everything but uh they did venture into very small halls and there no competition whatsoever but uh, they still pack fans in every week in some of their uh, local establishments okay so that kind of leads us to his start with Maple Leaf Wrestling because obviously uh like you said, the Tunnies ruled the roost, as you will, in Maple Leaf Wrestling. So how did he get his start getting into Maple Leaf Wrestling? And then maybe let's get into the, the Flying Frenchman uh, name that he had before yeah. he started the other names. So we, we know that um, he became famous because of his bear, Terrible Ted. And that's where he got in the start in the early 60s. Well, I should say that in the late 50s. Um, he got the bear in approximately 1958, and and that changed the whole outlook on things for for all the promoters in the local area because they could bring Dave and his bear in as an added attraction. Frank wasn't stupid. Uh, Frank booked him quite a bit in different halls. Uh, he was going under the name of Jean Dubois, the Flying Frenchman at the time, who also he also had Dave Dubois and Jean Dubois, as in the French uh, spelling of John, he, uh, he he took the bear and him uh, all over Ontario, and they would headline, actually, in some of Chinese cities, like Hamilton, St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, 
and then uh, generally around the again around the Toronto general market area but never headlining in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens of course Dave was small Dave was a short guy he was like maybe 5'10 at that time he was not even probably 200 pounds so uh, he he just couldn't stand with the big boys like with uh, Kiniski and Kowalski and some of the guys they had in Toronto at the time um Flying Frenchman, I don't really know where it came from other than it was a gimmick name that would have uh, probably given him some allure for, I don't even know if he could speak French. The guy, he was part Scottish, so I mean, he, he probably didn't even speak French. But yeah, he was built from Sudbury and North Bay and uh, different, quote, French-speaking places. Now, I think Terrible Ted is something that we need to dive into a little bit here because I'd I don't know when else on the podcast we'll be able to talk about a, a live wrestling bear. So for individuals who are not familiar, Terrible Ted was the one of the draws, if you will, of that time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Terrible Ted was uh, bought from a circus that was going out of out of um, or going out of business, I guess is the proper way to put it. But not only that, the bear was detoothed and declawed, which is an interesting, I mean, nowadays that would be very, very much frowned upon. But, you know, back in the day, that was kind of the the sideshow attraction appeal, having a, you know, seven foot, 600 pound bear on your on your tour as a as a traveling circus aspect. I, I Andy, believe me, I'm not that enamored with the bear. A lot of people are. Uh, my podcast partner Jesse is just enamored with the bear wrestling. I, 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 I would never have gotten in the ring ever. I know people who have personally. People who've gotten in the ring with the bear, I would never do that. I never would want to even step in the ring. But uh, I, I don't understand the lure of it. It just doesn't do anything for me at all. Like some people don't like the lady wrestlers. Some people don't like the uh, the midget wrestlers or what have you. But uh, it just doesn't interest me whatsoever, but Dave and Ted had a relationship, uh, and uh, that, that's right from everybody I talked to that knew both of them. Both the huh, how are you going to know a bear? But you you know if you if you stayed with Dave at any point in time, which some of the people I've talked to have, they said that the bear was awesome. He was trained. He was like a big dog, and Dave toured constantly with terrible ted probably crossing the states at least five times uh california nevada arizona right down the west coast and then through texas over to florida and then back up the east coast and he usually made it back up to canada just in time for the summer season see it's interesting you bring up the part about you know Ted and Dave having quite the relationship, but the fans had quite the relationship with the matches between Ted and Dave. And we're not talking about fans, you know, in the 200, 300, 400 fan range. We're talking about crowds of 8,000 plus, including uh, Boxing Day in 1958. Uh, there was 8,250 fans who went to Maple Leaf Gardens to see Terrible Ted and Dave McKigney. Uh, have their match and uh, terrible Ted with the big victory in that one I think sent a lot of the fans home happy but I'm with you you know the the thought of jumping in the ring against a bear whether or not he has his uh, fangs if you will is is quite the quite the daunting tax 
or task to uh, hop into a ring in in regards to the um, my good friend Terry Dart, the late Terry Dart. Uh, he actually got in the ring more than once with Ted, and he uh, Ted slipped and fell on Terry's ankle, broke his ankle, and they, <laughs> if you want to call it, they finished the match. Terry hobbled out of the ring, stayed for the rest of the show, and then drove himself to the hospital to get his ankle uh, uh, put on a, in a cast. And, and the, I, I, that scares the living bejesus out of me. Thinking, like, put yourself in, Andy, oh, Andy, Andy, come on up into the ring here. We're just going to throw you off the ropes a couple times. But I can't do it. No, 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 it's okay. They drag you in. They throw you off the ropes. And the next thing you know, someone's giving giving you a, even if it was a soft a clothesline, right? I, 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 the bear falling on you, my God, they're at least, they're probably not 700 pounds, but they're at least 400 pounds anyways. I, 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 I don't get it. Yeah, it's uh, not one of my most planned things to do in the ring, certainly speaking. But it is interesting that so he, he has terrible Ted, he's making a name for himself, and that's kind of when he starts to make the transition into the uh, Dave McKigney that we would know later in life as the wild man. What do you know about his transformation and how he started to, you know, he grew out the beard, he grew out the hair, he started to adopt this a different personality. Was that specifically because of the matches with Ted, or is this something that he kind of picked up on and planned on doing uh, throughout his, his early stages of his career. I'm, I don't know hundred percent, but I'm quite sure that it was a, it was a look that would coincide with the bear. Um, the big hairy bear, obviously big hairy Dave, uh, cause he was, he was a bushy man. Um, that wild man uh, gimmick, which so many people have used like Furpo and, um, I'm trying to think of guys that had long straggly hair and uh, covered themselves up with the hair and um, big beards and stuff. It, it was just a gimmick. It was just a thing. I think he started not shaving in approximately 71, 72. I think he was still clean shaven. Uh, and he uh, uh, also one of the other guys who came out of not necessarily out of the camp with him, but basically grew up with him in that uh, 60s time frame was uh, Willie the Wolfman. And there was another hairy, long-haired, bearded guy who um, they, they complimented each other really, really well. And they were a great traveling tag team also for, for um, I don't know, close to 20 years. See, it's interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of fans will obviously know Dave McKigney in his, in his Toronto aspect, but... He went to Stampede and had quite the run there as well. And he was using, you know, his plethora of names there as well. It's interesting, you know, when we go through the timeline of, of Canadian professional wrestlers, normally they'll start with the name, maybe they'll morph to another one, and then they'll kind of settle on on their main name. And that's kind of the one that you see them traveling around Canada with. But McKinney is kind of a weird one because like you said earlier, right? He's he's Jean Dubois, then he's Pierre Dubois, then he's Dave Dubois, then he's then he's the Wild Man, then he's a Canadian Wild Man. When did he start to settle on the Wild Man as his traveling gimmick full time, rather than moving territory to territory with these 
rotating plethora of names. And and he had a rotating plethora. I had, do have a list of some of his names. He he Mike he used Mike Dubois, which was funny because that was like um, Cecil Dubois' real name, I think, that chap from Montreal. Uh, and uh, his, uh, I think um, in 1972, Dave started working with the WWA out of Indianapolis with a Snyder and the Bruiser. And he was billed as the beast in the WWA when they were taking uh, some of the guys and the bear and his daughter, uh, stepdaughter, Rachel, down to Indianapolis and Chicago and Detroit to wrestle for the WWA. Uh, Late 73, basically no more Jean Dubois, Jean Dubois. It was pretty much always the wild man. But it's funny, Andy, the, the guys I talked to that worked with him and were back in that day in the 70s, they all called him the Bear Man, which is another name. But it was more like the guys in the dressing room would call him the Bear Man as opposed to the fans knowing him as the Bear Man. And I've always known him as the Wild Man. Uh, And all my research, everything I usually write about him is basically uh, either Dave or the Wild Man. See, the Bearman part is interesting, too, because obviously he was traveling with Terrible Ted and he was kind of known as almost the Bear Whisperer. And we'll get into that a little bit later in the episode as well. But the the Wild Man is the one that seems to stick in the majority of wrestling fans' minds today, right? And you can see it. You know, we see the posts on, you know, the Pro Wrestling uh, History Facebook page or, or any, any of your uh, national clipping pages. It's It's almost always now the wild man but it is interesting that there were so many of these different names throughout all these different territories like you said uh he's he's in tri-states he's in he's in stampede he's out uh, he's out further east uh he's down down very into the deep south and it, all these names but it's it's the same person yeah and he and he plays off this this character like you said that is not a character specific to him because there were other ones like Pampero Furpo, who who's a tremendous wild man. Uh, you know, there, there are several others that come to mind quickly, but he kind of stands out as this Canadian style of these international wild men, if you will, who are running wild between, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s throughout North America. The it's it's funny because I, when you try to research things on the Internet um, and I've I have I was thinking about it today, Andy, I've probably researched on the Internet uh, him for and I think I counted up 19 years now that I've been doing research on him on the Internet. And I, and I, and I believe me, I've fallen down the rabbit hole a million times. So um, it's just it's so strange to be looking for different names and you have no idea sometimes like would you look for Gene Kaniski you 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 might see Gene misspelled might and sometimes yes this Kaniski is misspelled by accident in the ad but Gene Kaniski Gene Kaniski he he was at the start he was Gene Kaniski at the end he was Gene Kaniski there's no hardly ever anything any deviation whatsoever and Dave Dave was Yeah, I mean, in the ads in the late 80s, he was billed as the Canadian wild man, which, okay, another one, right? He he just really had that 
I don't know what it was, maybe different areas he wanted to be built differently or something. But yeah, as we grew more into the 80s and he was more of a stay-at-home guy in Ontario, uh, yeah, he was just just the plain the wild man. Everyone knew just the wild man. Oh, the wild man shows are coming to town or whatever, right? So I think bef- that's an interesting aspect to to think about. And I want to get back to that in a second. But what I want to kind of circle back to is the perception of the wild man. Because, like you said, from your research, right, finding out information, if it's misspelled, if it's mis- if it's mislabeled, whatever, you're, you're going through research and you're trying to find, you know, Dave, is it actually him? Was he actually there? But a lot of that is because he was in so many different places, right? And, and you know, you look at all the different territories that he was wrestling in. Obviously, we have the Canadian ones we just listed. But, you know, he was he was wrestling in Georgia Championship Wrestling. He was with the WWA, like you said earlier. Uh, he was also in the AWA for quite a while. That's one of the common misconceptions that I seem to find when I'm going through, whether it's Facebook groups or you see it on Twitter or you'll see, you know, short video clips on your know, daily motion or whatever. And it, it's often framed that Dave McKigney was just the local Canadian guy. But that's not necessarily the case. When you start to dig into his uh, worldly travels, if you will, and I'm not talking about just North America, like he had some he had some shots in, in Japan as well. But these aren't shots just against, you know, enhancement talents, and he's not just a spot in a card. He's wrestling some big-name talent. Maybe can you just for a second elaborate a little bit more on some of the bigger-name talent that he ended up facing both in North America and then in overseas? Sure. Uh, you know, I've when I stumbled upon his Japanese results, I was shocked. I mean, he has a DQ win over Anoki. Uh, and he's got some really big wins um, against lesser guys who were coming up still in Japan. And that's pretty amazing considering he would have been in the mid 70s. He would have been 35, 40. Great shape for, you know, for the guy. But still um, not a famous worldwide name, although he did tour Germany and England. I have found some results from England with him, and he was billed as a uh, Dubois there, uh, Scotland and Wales and England. So, I mean, 50, 55, and part of 56, 1956, he was in England and, and uh, Europe for close to a year. And that's, it's, it, you know, a lot of people just, ha, 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 it's just... It's just the wild man, just that guy that promotes little small little shitty little towns in Ontario. And, you know, he's got all these old guys. But the guy had a massive career, a massive career. If he hadn't died, he probably would have been wrestling for at least, I would say, two more or three more years. And and we can talk about what may have happened after the accident later, if you wish. Yes, and I I would like to get to that. Um, But I just I want to stay on. Something you just said there is, you know, the perception that, you know, he was he was, quote, just that Ontario guy wrestling just these small territories, because you look at the list of opponents that he had over the years. You just you know, you talked about Inoki, who we went into uh, depth last episode on my episode uh, talking about the great Antonio and what what happened with the great Antonio versus Antonio Inoki. Yeah. Yeah. 
But, you know, to get even a DQ win over Inoki in Japan was a big deal. And we're talking about 75. That's when Inoki was a god. Yeah. Like, the way that the way that wrestling fans in North America would view Hulk Hogan in the eight, late 80s, that was Inoki in, you could realistically say, from from 71 to, like, 79. And and here's McKinney over there in, in 75, and he went over, there, over him. But you look at some of the big names that he wrestled, uh, even just domestically, right? Uh, he had um, big matches against... Another Canadian uh, WWF champion at the time, Ivan Koloff, for example, uh, he defeated Lou Albano at the time was a huge deal with the WWF. Right, like he he's he's also wrestling uh, a young Roddy Piper at one point uh, in I believe that was in the AWA. So you look at his you look at his his match listing and his match trajectory. It's not like he was some some you know, and has some talent schlub like we're talking about, right? I know that's kind of the the way that misinformed, possibly, you know, modern style fans would look at him now when you just look at him as, oh, he was that Ontario promoter guy. They don't take the time to go back into his match history and understand, you know, how he rose through the ranks in North America. Maybe that is because of the the name issue that we've you know talked about it at some length so far because it's hard to it's it's real easy to go through the internet and find Roddy Piper and you get you know 50 yeah. 50 match results and you can see all the big stars it's a lot harder for somebody like McKigney who had different ring names in different promotions wrestling at different times so it's it is difficult to get a, an actual uh chronological match listing uh, unless you're willing to put in the time and effort like you have done the the uh, he it, it's strange like you talk about uh, and he is he's considered i don't personally i don't consider him but he's considered basically in nowadays as a nobody people only know him in modern day standards like you said uh, as uh, because of his posters and that's that's it. It's not there's hardly anything. No one cares. And I don't really think, Andy, I really don't think for some reason that Dave didn't care either. He knew he was always coming home. I think he always knew he was coming home. He was on a tour. He had his book dates. Maybe if he was gone for, say, three months or four months and with the bear or even when he didn't have the bear. And yeah, him and uh, Willie the Wolfman. Uh, they would tour the outside, basically, of New York City, WWWF, in the early 70s. As you mentioned, he, he was one of the first people to face Ivan Koloff before Ivan uh, lost the belt to Pedro Morales. And uh, he, he, he wrestled everybody in, in the WWWF in the early 70s. Um, Sekluna, who was one of his training partners, he, he wrestled Morales. He wrestled Strongbow tons of times. And, and I think... Also, traveling all through North America and Canada, he would be uh, a guy that would say, hey, look, you know, eventually I'm going to get my own promotion. 
maybe we'll change uh, exchange numbers and maybe you can come up and work for me. And I think that was one of the reasons how he was able to get so many great names over his promoting career. And Andy, you know, I've looked at his promoting career and I have approximately 1,200 matches uh, as, <coughs> excuse me, as the wild man uh, or the Canadian wild man or Gene Dubois uh, through his promoting career from about 66 right to his death in 1988. Okay, and that's something that we're going to circle back to in, in just a minute as well, because, it's, yeah. you know, as, as prolific as his wrestling career was, I think his promoting career is one, uh, again, that's really overlooked. And, and again, you know, you can, you can look on message boards and what, and what have you. Like you said, a lot of fans will gravitate to the posters because they were uh, uh, and still are like one of those things that kind of catches your eye throughout all, all the kind of wrestling noise, if you will, out there. There's this odd misconception that, you know, he would, quote, just book the old guys or just have the old timers in there. And that's not necessarily the case. And and we'll dig into that in just a second. But I, I want to stay on this on this thought of, of him as a wrestler and what he brought to the table in all these different markets. Because, again, here's somebody who isn't he's not your standard mechanic right he's he's not coming in to shine up the you know the local baby face he's not coming in as as the monster heel or anything like that but he's one of these guys who comes in and just makes connections and it seems it almost seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong but he seems to make connections in every promotion then use those connections to get himself further along in each successive promotion while at the same time planting the seeds for having these individuals that he's making these connections with to come into his promotion when he's ready to make that step later in life. The, the, what I've read when researching his travels through the States was that he, he was well-liked and you got to figure if, if um, we were touring as a tag team, say, and, you were a great star, and I was just tagging along with you like a lot of the tag teams of the older days where there was a young guy and an older veteran kind of guy. I think a lot of times if Dave wasn't a wrestler, he wouldn't have got on the card because he just would have been the bear, and the bear would have been going up against the number one heel at the time or the whatever, right? Um, so Dave wrestled on every single card practically. He did just didn't wrestle the bear. He wrestled on the undercard on just about every card he ever wrestled. So a lot of times he was working two nights, two times a night. And everything I've read has been that the guy was a hand. He he could, he could do it. I mean, he could go full, full on uh, baby face or full on heel. No, no ifs, ands, or buts based on who he was going to wrestle and where, and when he was in whatever promotion he was in, he used to go through, the mid-Atlantic states and wrestled just about uh, every night for two or three weeks straight, just do the circle. And it would be uh, probably one night with him wrestling someone and the bear would come in as a, uh, some sort of a DQ finish or something like that. And then the next time week or the next two weeks and when the next show would be there, they would have him in the, at the bear. And it, he, he had the talent and I, again, I think he was a. I think he liked traveling, but I think he was a homebody, and I think he liked coming home. 
the homebody thing is not something that's specific to him either because there's a lot of wrestlers, and we've seen it throughout the years, who like to stay in their general territory, right? I'm, I'm thinking about uh, somebody like a Stu Hart, for example. We could pick um, Mad Dog Frenchy Pelican out of Manitoba. Yeah. Some some of the some of the other guys who were who were big here, they lasted a long time, but they just didn't want to travel. They had either they had a half decent job that they wanted to hang on to, or they you know they they just didn't want to travel and and be away from home. So it's interesting that you know here here's somebody who wants to be close to home, but then moves into the promotion side of things. So maybe that's a maybe that's a good segue to move into that portion of his career. So from all your research, when was the seed sort of to be planted for him to move into the promotion range? And what really was the genesis for him to start promoting shows himself? I, I think that Red Garner probably taught all the guys really, really well. Uh, Von Eric, Sekluna, Judo Mongol. I think he taught them all really well. I think he probably taught them all aspects of the business so that they could carry on if they so desired. Dave was promoting by himself in the early, uh, so sorry, late 50s, 58, 59. And they were doing some very, very short, small tours with Waldo and uh, uh, and Sekluna and Judo Mongol. So, you know, they... They were booking the very small halls, so the very small arenas in the summertime in Ontario, and they were doing the rounds and being rather successful. Dave got the bear. He realized the bear was money, um, and they started getting booked while doing uh, doing the bear routine. And like I said, he did four or five tours of, of North America. So coming back home, working Terrible Ted in Quebec, to working with Terrible Ted in, in Ontario through the summertime, uh, Dave started promoting, I'm, my research says 1965, and that was late uh, summer of 65, that was in conjunction with Whipper Watson, who I think had sort of broken away from Tunney at the time and maybe wanted a, a little piece of his own action, especially for his son, Phil, who was coming up. Well, actually, for his son, John, Whipper Watson had two sons. Uh, his older son, John, who was the first Whipper Watson Jr., uh, got hurt and he quit the business. And then Philip, who was the more famous Whipper Watson Jr., came along. And he was a very, very frequent um, partner with Dave in the in the early days, promoting and working on his cards. So, yeah, I, I'd say 65, 66 for sure. I do have articles that say um, Whipper Watson stating that Dave McKegney is his promoter and they're working in conjunction uh, during the summer circuit in Ontario, the cottage circuit or summer circuit, whatever you want to call it. Now, Whipper Watson is an interesting name uh, that would be advertised as, as uh, or that he would advertise as McKegney as his promoter because obviously we know Whipper Watson and his connection with the Toronto office and the Tunnies. Maybe can you go into detail a little bit about the friction between the wild man and the Toronto office? The <laughs> great, great, um, great battles going on there. There's such a love-hate relationship. Um, Frank and Dave 
worked together, then they didn't work together. Then they worked together, then they didn't work together. Frank rented Dave's ring. Uh, the ring wouldn't show up. Then Frank was pissed. Uh, and it, it, was, it was on and on and on, on and off, I should say, on and off, on and off, on and off. Um, you know, I've, there's been reports of uh, Dave McKigney speaking to the newspaper saying, I wouldn't work for Tunney. I wouldn't work for Crockett. I wouldn't work for those crooks. You know, they're uh, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 you know, it's like the wrestling business, Andy. Uh, two weeks later, oh, we need a ring and uh, bring your bear. And, oh, well, and the, the money's right. The price is, oh, we're friends now. So, yeah, it's, 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 um, they promoted against each other a few times. Uh, Dave lost the big ones, but he won all the little ones. And it's funny because they tried to, Dave promoted in Varsity Arena in Toronto. 1971 September with a really big card. He had Mulligan, Blackjack Mulligan, who came from Montreal. He had the Hollywood Blondes who came from Montreal. Uh, he had some guys from Pittsburgh come up for the show, and it was a uh, it would have been a great show. Uh, but uh, he picked a Sunday night uh, to go up against Frank Tunney and his show, like all probably all five miles away at Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, Dave lost his shirt massively frank just jam-packed his show with people and and it was it was a loss a complete loss but he didn't stop because he knew that i guess he just felt that he was going to be the promoter in the area that wasn't frank and in london ontario uh, frank had started dwindling down his cards in about 72 73 they were weekly cards in london ontario during the school season so September to June, uh, and uh, then they were once every two weeks. Then it was once a month, and then it was only in the summer. They changed that, and Dave saw that opportunity to rent the biggest arena in London, which was the London Arena. I think it held about 4,000 people, and it was packed for wrestling, and because Dave's shows were wild, Dave's shows were exciting, They weren't. Uh, there was no Lee Hennings or uh, any... 50-year-old guys uh, going through the motions on this card. It, they were action-packed, and and he he actually started winning London, and he won London, and he promoted over a hundred shows in London over his career. And D- Dave uh, Frank tried a couple times to come back, and just just wasn't the same. Okay, let's stay on that topic for a second because that's one of the most common mis- misconceptions that I find is that. You know, when you look online, you look what people are saying on message boards or whatever, they'll often refer to the McKigney shows as as the the retirement tours, if you will. But that's not at all what they were. Uh, the McKigney tours were often featuring a lot of a lot of up and coming, a lot of young talent. And it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, selling out four thousand or selling a four thousand seat uh, arena in London. Right. Another misconception that we often hear is that McKinney was running these, you know, three, four hundred seat pavilions, arenas, whatever you want to call them. And that's simply not the case. And that's that's maybe one of the more common misconceptions that I see. What are you able to find in your research in regards to, uh, one, the types of talent that the wild man was using and two, uh, the amount of fans that he was drawing in Ontario specifically, but maybe let's go more broadly speaking in uh, Eastern Canada. So it, 
You know, uh, Andy, when um, Frank Tunney was coming to town, they would pay for the ad and a couple of write-ups before the show, and they would pay for a spot for the results. And Dave wouldn't usually pay for the results. He just paid for the ads. And so over the years, there was less and less and less results and less facts for sure about his shows unless it was a town that hadn't seen wrestling for a long time uh in london that he had a lot of press and i i'm not gonna you know candy coat things sometimes uh they were great shows sometimes they weren't the greatest shows guys never showed up or anything but yeah in london ontario he was packing them in it was a sellout every two weeks in the summertime tony marino tony Parisi, eric the red he had uh uh the big, the big K, who would have been a star in the AWA, had had come out to Ontario for the two summers in a row. Uh, Danucci was there for a while. His his reach had started coming, and that was uh, one of the times when he started pulling in uh, big guys from around. Uh, he got Gorgeous George Jr. in 1971 from uh, the Mid Atlantic area. He came in for the whole season, and it it was it was. Marvelous. And yes, Andy, there's no doubt that he may have hit a town and the weather was bad or this or that. And yeah, he maybe only sold 400 tickets. And I've seen the results on some shows where he maybe didn't make any money. But the, you know, if you're you're playing an arena every two weeks and you're selling out two, three, four thousand tickets, you're making money hand over fist. And back in the day, his tickets were a dollar fifty, two dollars, and three dollars for ringside. So four thousand people at an average of even two dollars is is a lot of money. Yeah, and the time frame as well is something that people seem to overlook because, you know, you're you're looking at like you said, ringside was two bucks <laughs> or or whatever. Maybe maybe it was two fifty even, and uh, and your expenses are not now what they what they would be in, in today's day and age if you will so it is it is interesting to you know the fact that you're bringing up that you you know you could sell out you you could have 2,000 people or whatever and do very well for yourself and then keep doing that every two weeks mm-hmm. and continue to build the business up uh, that's something that I think is overlooked as well quite a bit in the in the now 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 everything's now in in wrestling research if you will and i use that term very loosely because there's not a lot of that done nowadays as you you very well know um maybe let's let's back off of that aspect a little bit and let's talk about um just the the reach of the wild man tours because i think that's something that's overlooked as well can you go into a little bit of detail about you know what would a typical run of the Wildman Tour look like? Well, Andy, I have a, I call it a database. It's not a database. I, it's a, it's a book. It's an old book. It's a, like a school book. And I started doing it, uh, I don't know, about 20 something years ago, writing down his uh, arenas that he booked in the dates and I just kept adding and adding and adding and adding and adding and adding I'm still and I still added actually five new dates just last week so it's it's never going to stop but the book page is jam-packed and I'm squeezing uh, 
another date in somewhere and writing the city down in the main event. And there's no more room on most of the pages. In the summer of 1974, when Archie Goldie came and headlined for him throughout Ontario, they didn't, I don't think they stopped. I don't think they stopped. Archie showed up on, I think, May 6th, and he left on September the 4th, I think. And they, I think they went every night throughout the whole summer, every night. And that I had a get together at my house about five or six years ago, and I had a map of Ontario on the wall. And I had some pictures of the wild man and his crew. And I had a map and I highlighted all the cities and towns that he had wrestled in that I knew of back then. And the map was practically covered because there wasn't very many places he didn't go. Um, I mean, uh, I don't I, I can't put it into any perspective because where we live now, there's just not the population. So you could say um, if someone lived in New York, Upper New York State. He hit Fredonia. He hit Ellicottville. He hit Olean. He hit Tonawanda. He hit Grand Island. He hit Niagara Falls, New York. He hit Lewiston. I mean, he hit Rochester. It just, it just didn't stop, and it just a circle went round and around and around. And that's something else that I think a lot of people don't realize too is, you know, a lot of people focus on. Uh, Maple Leaf Wrestling would do, you know, this town, this night, this town, this night, this town, this night, and repeat, right? Whereas, whereas the Wildman Tours was very much everywhere, right? Yeah. There was the, the, it wasn't a set schedule, and that's kind of what I'm that's what I'm getting at, right? It, it's he didn't just it wasn't the same thing over and over and over. And I think maybe that's why he he was so successful in all of these towns is because. He was bringing them something that they didn't see because nobody else was going there. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that, that that's something that we need to understand as well is, is that he was bringing a product to people who otherwise would not have access to, to this product. And then you have to think the time frame as well. You know, we're, we're talking about a time where cable TV is not a thing for very much like – almost at any of of ontario at that time i know we live in manitoba it's a little bit different here population wise but like back then in ontario the population was still you know what would it have been uh 10 million yeah farming communities didn't have cable farming communities lucky if they had two stations like you said uh, around here back in the early 70s um there was no ice in the arenas so guess what they were empty and he, uh, I've read in the book, and, and I've the book drawing heat. Believe me, Andy, I've read. I swear to God, ten thousand times. I've read every line in between every line, and in between those lines to to put a perspective on it. And I, I don't claim to be an expert or anything. It just I've read so much, and I've I've imagined so much because I've practically got inside his head by putting myself in that spot, putting myself sitting shotgun in his, in his truck, driving from town to town. And they would go and they would say like, oh, geez, um, we haven't been to Banada. Oh, yeah. Um, well, we don't go there in the early summer because um, they don't have all the immigrants there uh, collecting the corn or the tobacco or the whatever crops that were coming due. So that was uh, he never wrestled in Simcoe in the early summer. But in Simcoe, Ontario, in the late summer, he'd go every week. So there was no 
there was a schedule for some places, but not very many. I mean, the poster crew was probably busy. I remember talking to one of the guys who worked on the poster crew, and they said they had probably two or three hundred pounds of posters in their cars, and they were on the road all summer long, like two weeks ahead of the, the tour. Yeah, which I could definitely see because that's really the only way you could you could get a, around the just the pure logistical way of doing it back then, right? The, the, again, there's no the, fax machines, ain't a thing, internet ain't a thing, yeah. right? It's not happening like that. Um, okay, so we've kind of covered his his the tours. Um, unless there's anything that I missed. Specifically, you, you want to talk did, about the tours. You did mention uh, the East Coast, and he went uh, to the East Coast a couple times, but that was more in the 80s. Yes. Uh, um, things weren't going well here. Uh, there's another thing with Frank and Dave that uh, when the insurance premiums started going up in the late 70s, supposedly Frank lent him his insurance bond for a, a cost. And then um, something probably happened somewhere, and and like I said, there's not reports on every car that happened in every little town, so we don't know. You know, the bear could have got loose. You know, could have been a million things, right? We, you know, we we know how berserk the sheik was on some of his shows, and uh, he zipped some guy in, um, I think, uh, Meaford, Ontario, which is up near Owen Sound, and he got uh, he got taken to court, and and it was on a day, it was on a wild man show, so. Um, you know, the bond was gone. Dave was guys. Dave's regular guys were getting older, and he and Phil Watson went uh, down east. And I think it was 80, 80. Yeah, I have it in my book, but it, it was in the early eighties. And um, they they tried to weasel in on the East Coast promotions and. They had a few guys come over to work for them that were working down there, and they had a they had a but they had a shed schedule. He knew where he was going way before he even got down there. But uh, and then of course there was another tour in the later 80s, in mid 80s, and then there was the unfortunately fateful tour in 88. Now it, the insurance thing is an interesting topic, and maybe this is a good time to you know we'll we'll get into some bear conversation now because there are two. There are two big stories about the Bears that are are legend. One infamously for for one reason, and one is kind of a kind of a humorous one, if you will. So, you may, you know, maybe we'll start with the humorous one first. And the the humorous one that I'm talking about is is the three thousand uh, dollar pin Ted challenge. You're you're familiar <laughs> with this? Yeah. This. Okay. It's been going on forever, yes. And oh, oh, okay. So, so maybe talk to me about. I, I believe it was 1966. What happened with the three thousand uh, dollar pin the Ted challenge? That the, the a chap in Ottawa said he pinned the bear, and and as we as we found out, um, I don't. What's the word that? Uh, it's impo- It's a possibility to pin a bear because it has round shoulders and a round back. So you you'd actually have to be strong enough to pick the whole bear up and and pin him like a cradle pin. Um, and, and supposedly someone did it and Dave never coughed up the money and took him to court. And uh, they, Dave won because he, he, you know, I know you can't pin a bear. Um, <laughs> Which is just wild. 
there's there's also unfortunately another thing that um, was really interesting, and I have a lot of information on this, was when the bear got arrested in Georgia. In, in yes, please please go into de- depth on that one as well. So. Um, and this was straight from a Beverly Shade who worked for Dave and it was her, uh, she was working on the card. Her uh, husband and her were promoting, uh, outlaw promoting in Florida and they booked Dave uh, in, I think it's Lacoste, Georgia. And uh, they went down, they, someone went downstairs and uh, the cops got scared of the bear because they'd never seen one before. And the cops said that bear tried to bite him. The bear was arrested. It spent a week in jail. I mean, it's just berserk, right? <laughs> there was actually pictures uh, in the Associated Press throughout North America of Dave on the phone, phoning his lawyer, um, and he obviously got like gazillions worth of pro- uh, uh, promotion from that. But yeah, it's 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 strange. <clears throat> I have a I have. A, we can talk about this a little bit after some of the things that I have that I can't show. And I'll tell you why a little later. But uh, I have lots of stuff on that, which is kind of a personal thing from someone else. And it's 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 got to remain secret for the time being. But we can talk about it all we want. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just it's bizarre. And, and you got to figure in the 60s, southern states, anything could happen right and yeah they arrested the bear david to throw up like a thousand bucks to get the, the bear out of jail and he probably went back in the area two weeks later and probably booked the bear in every single arena he could get and probably made the money back 10 times right now one of the more disturbing bear stories obviously the the story involving Smokey. so i don't know how you want to approach this one but it's something you got to talk about so if you want to get into this one or i can it's up to you i'm, I'm not it's, sure it's 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 a terrible terrible story it's uh what i've read what i've heard um it was just a pile of misfortunate situations that just piled on top of each other and the next you know there's a, a, a tragedy you know it was a tragedy obviously um terrible ted was supposedly in a tree that's where he liked to hang out dave was cleaning out the pens and Smokey, for whatever reason, went in the house and like just crushed Lynn Orser to death. And <clears throat> excuse me, it's 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 so movie like that it's hard to believe even, Andy. It's hard to believe. I was in the house myself. I saw the window where the bear came through. I saw where Dave, uh, the area actually right where Dave smashed the couch over the bear's back. Uh, I saw the pen. Is it was surreal. It was just bizarre because in our world of how we are now, you've mentioned this a couple of times in the quick pace now, now, now world, anything that's like that is it can't be true. It must be a movie. It must be not real. It must be like a video game. It must be like something that can can't really happen. And 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 Jesus, it happened. It was like 1977, and it happened, and a lady died because of a bunch of circumstances that turned into a tragedy. Now, obviously I don't want to end us on that note. So maybe can you, without going into too much detail, what do you have that you want to talk about, but you can't show like what's, what's under wraps? Cause now you've piqued my interest and I got to know what you, what you have, what you, but it's kind of in your vault, if you will. 
We well, three years ago, uh, uh, three and a half years ago, I got a call from a man who said he was a documentary maker. I was like, okay. He goes, well, I've seen your uh, Wild Man Facebook page, and you know, can we talk about maybe putting a project together? And believe me, Andy, I was like, what? <laughs> what? I, I I swear to God, I got off the phone and I Googled this guy right away. And yeah, it, the guy's a documentary producer. And he just phoned me and he wants me to help him with a documentary on The Wild Man. I was like, I shit myself. I was like crazy. I like, couldn't believe it. But on the same note, the book Drawing Heat, I knew about that about a year in advance, a year and a half in advance. And I, I didn't really believe that it was going to happen. I thought, well, maybe that'd be great. Uh, my friend Terry Dart, who uh, was in the book Drawing Heat, uh, he had given me an advance part of the manuscript, told me all about the book being put out, that, but it was taking a long time to get put out because he had to find a publisher and everything. Um, the same with this documentary. Um, I was privy to a bunch of personal stuff of Dave's that it's not really right to share if it comes out in the documentary and it's my, then it's mine to share. Um, the movie is still in the works and if it ever comes to pass, that'll be great. And if it doesn't, I'm going to give it some time and then I will just release, uh, what I have, uh, personally. It's, it's nothing earth shattering. It's nothing, um, it's not going to change the world. It's just a lot of information that I think a lot of people that, are on the wild man page which handy is like over 1200 people now um they would like to see they would like to know about and it's just little tidbits of this little tidbits of that some legal documents and a few other things that are really kind of part of the story if there were things about the wild man that you think that people should know or should look into what would those things be that's a good question I, I think that they should look into what we talked about earlier, his whole career, his, his his everything that he did. Not I'm not delving into it deeply, but looking at a guy that became just a, Andy. He got he was a bit of a joke at one time. He, it was a joke in Ontario. Like, ugh, he's bringing another show to wherever. Oh God, Bobo, Jesus, you know Bobo and the Sheik. Who wants to see Bobo and the Sheik? But it, that was he had turned himself a, a little bit into a bit of a second rate person, I think. You know, it's not always rosy. The life your life isn't always rosy. My life isn't always rosy. And geez, his life wasn't always rosy either. So there's aspects of his uh, career that were fantastic. And I think that's great. But you have to remember that, yeah, there was parts of his promoting career that. That sucked. I mean, his living girlfriend got killed by a bear and then he died on the highway doing what he loved. So an unbelievably tragic life, but spectacular as in uh, having been a professional wrestler for over 30 years. Now, why don't you go ahead and tell me what... During all of whether it's your research or or things you've seen or things you've read, 
tell me tell me something that's jumped out at you from either his life or his career that's something that's really stood out to you as like uh like a real hallmark moment if you will a real something that something that you saw and immediately drew you into him i i i think this is a kind of kind of a soft answer eddie to see the Sheik. Now, I, I didn't go to see the Sheik at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I'm glad I didn't because you're sitting in with 16,000 other people, and it, it, yes, it would have been exciting and everything, but it just wouldn't have been the same. When I bought a ticket to go to a Wildman show to see Louis Martinez and the Sheik in the main event, and the Sheik walked by me like five feet from me, and then him and Martinez were wrestling five feet from me, throwing each other around the crowd, that was worth everything that, that was that was the penultimate moment for me he brought the chic into places where people had only heard about him maybe not even if they weren't complete wrestling fans they didn't even look at the wrestling magazines but they knew who the chic was and to to let's put it into perspective of of, of manitoba um a place like um il de Chien, they have a half decent size arena there and dave would have booked that arena and those fans in that area could have went and seen the Sheik and, and up close and personal right there. You could smell the blood. You could see the sweat like pouring off them because they were five, five feet away from you. Just ridiculously exciting, ridiculously exciting. No doubt about it. Bar none, nothing else compares to being that close to such a famous wrestler. And you wouldn't have got that experience if not for McKigney, right? Like 100%. And it was everywhere. Every arena where the Sheik was when he was working with him, those people were going to see that and get that 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 thrill, that just pumping of their adrenaline by being five feet or ten feet away from the Sheik. And even if they were sitting in the stands, most people would run down to ringside anyways because there was no control whatsoever. There was no ropes. There was no around the ring. There was nothing. I mean – if you pulled the chair up from beside you, you ran, right? But was there anything that we didn't touch on tonight that you want to to say or to make sure makes air on this program? I, I think that for uh, an unknown outside of Ontario, because basically as general fan, he's an unknown guy out of Ontario other than his posters – but the lure of his promotion, as people get to learn about it and to know that Sullivan worked there, Lewin worked there, yes, Brazil, yes, the Sheik, Andre the Giant worked for him close to 50 times over the years. Uh, oh, Archie Goldie worked there. Uh, it, the list went on and on and on. The guys from Montreal, Carpentier would have worked for him. Hans Schmidt would have worked for him. Uh, the, 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 just Rougeau's worked for him. It's unbelievable. Mad Dog Vachon worked for Dave and Sudbury once. I mean, Zabisco worked for him. Danucci. Uh, Ivan Koloff came down once when he was in the WWA. The Blackjacks. Uh, just unbelievable amount of talent coming to his, his, I call them his, his small towns in Ontario. And it wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just a thing. He had like a massive promotion with no TV, no internet, no cable, no nothing, just posters and t- and uh, newspaper ads. So, and uh, word of mouth. So if I was going to say anything, I would like people to 
if I can, on your show, tell people about the, the, the Facebook page because there's over eight years of stuff on that page that's going right from everything to anywhere. And it's just the Wild Man tribute page on Facebook. And I've been doing it, like I said, for close to eight years now. And it's 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 what I wake up every morning thinking about. Oh, what about this? What about that? Maybe I should put a poster on today or whatever. And it's I it's so exciting and interesting to me to teach people about his promotion. And I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about him because then we're going to even teach even more people about him. This has been your episode of Grappling with Canada. This episode was written, researched, produced, and recorded by me, Andy the Taxman. You can find Grappling with Canada on all major podcasting platforms. Please make sure to rate and review five stars where available. You can also find Grappling with Canada on all major social media platforms. Just search Grappling with Canada on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you are willing and able to financially support Grappling with Canada, you can find links to PayPal and buymeacoffee.com on the Linktree link in today's show notes. You can also find links to the Grappling with Canada merchandise store in the show notes for today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family. This is Andy the Taxman saying... Thank you very much for supporting and listening to this program. Take care of yourselves and each other.